Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games is the best place to get MTGA arena codes. From booster packs to awesome cosmetics, check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT for 10% off. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes. Today we will be covering Prismari Spells in Strixhaven. Prismari, for those of you new to Strixhaven, is the name of the red-blue color combination. The descriptor spells here is not just like, oh, if you're Prismari, I think that you are a spells deck. I believe that every color pair has at least two very substantially distinct archetypes. What I'm going to be talking about today is more Prismari big spells, specifically. I believe that there is a completely distinct Prismari aggro deck that I will likely cover at some point in the future, but today we're going to be talking about the big spells, kind of, you know, more controlling deck. That's not an expression of a preference or saying it's better or anything. This is just what we're going to be talking about today. Because there are five central color pairs rather than ten color pairs in this set. More effort in design was put into making sure that there were different ways to play each color combination, and so we're going to be acknowledging and focusing on that uh, as I cover the archetypes in this podcast. As a note, something I'm doing a tiny bit differently is I have put my notes for anyone who is a uh, $10 patron of Drafting Archetypes. I share the notes that I use for the podcasts. Traditionally, I've done that after recording the podcasts, but I've put that note up on Patreon now for anyone who wants to look at that while I'm talking, check that out and follow along. Also, obviously, if you are not currently a patron and it sounds interesting to you to do that, that's something that you could certainly fix at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. And I will be putting the notes up in the future shortly before going over uh, each archetype. Anyway, as for uh, getting into Prismari spells and what we're looking at here, I want to start by setting kind of a big picture understanding of the format. I talked about, you know, the format big picture last week, but now I've actually played some games. So my first impressions are as anticipated. I think that you can play two or three color decks. Most of the time you will be either two or three colors and that those will happen comparably frequently. We will, I suspect probably two colors a little bit more often than three, but three will not be unusual. Also, I believe that the card Environmental Sciences, which is the two colorless lesson that searches your library for a basic land, puts it into your hand and gains two life, absolutely pivotal to your ability to play more than two colors and should be drafted extremely highly as a result. The last draft that I did, I took one first pick over the XXX red red giant explosion thing. Crackle with power, I think. I don't know if that pick in particular is right, but I think that in general, there's a lot to be gained by taking environmental sciences early and knowing that you have it because it just gives you a lot of optionality in terms of, okay, well now I know that I can be like three colors or two in a splash or whatever, and it's very easy to do that as long as I focus on getting some early cards that learn. Basically, I've just like turned a large number of cards in this set into mana fixing. It's much more powerful than any kind of mana fixing that we're used to seeing in terms of like Prophetic Prism or whatever, where it's like, oh, this unlocks my deck. This 
fills every pack with prophetic prisms. Just every card that says learn becomes that. This single pick completely changes everything about how to understand your mana base. You don't need a second one. If You just take one and then after that learn cards are better than additional copies, which means that multiple people at a table can get it, but the advantage to taking it early is that you know that you can do that. So you can look for cards to splash and look for early learn cards. Whereas like you might be able to do that otherwise, but you're going to be gambling a little bit if you are counting on seeing one. It won't surprise me if there end up being spots where after pack one, I have like a card or two that I can play if and only if I end up seeing an environmental sciences in future packs. And I will frequently find myself in a spot where I wanted, where like environmental sciences is the card that I'm looking to see. Anticipating that, my current strategy is to take the first copy extremely highly and then I don't have to worry about it. As for playing four or more colors, obviously, since the primary way to fix your mana is and should be environmental sciences, it's really easy. You know, your mana base is eight of one color, eight of another color, one of a third color. With that mana base, it's really easy for environmental sciences to give you perfect mana. Whereas if you're trying to play four color, then you have to like draw three of your colors and sciences for the fourth or whatever. It's much harder to, you know, get it all to line up properly. Basically, if you're four color, you need to focus more on like the dedicated multicolor fixing, the land that taps for mana of any color and the artifact that taps for mana of any color. Those are both great in enabling four color decks, but they're also both really bad cards that I would hope to avoid putting in my deck. And I think that the strength of the set is such that you basically shouldn't need to play four colors to have a strong deck and to put a lot of powerful cards in your deck. I would generally advocate for not tr trying to do that. So I think you wanna be two or three color a vast majority of the time. I'm not exclusively focusing on a two-color deck. Uh, I'm focusing on Prismari spells with an understanding that this deck is built around blue and red cards, but that could easily mean also playing green or white cards. It's not uncommon that this deck plays more forests than it does either islands or mountains or maybe both while still being in the Prismari Spells archetype. There are a lot of green cards that are good to splash here. I still think that Prismari Spells splashing green is somewhat distinct from Quandrick's control. To like set the understanding here, I think in general, when I'm looking at control decks, I will be expecting that I'm covering the two and three color versions of a control deck based on that color pair, because it's so easy for control decks to splash an extra color and when they splash a few cards of an extra color, I don't think it fundamentally changes their identity very much. So we're going to be talking about both the cores in blue-red to do this for this kind of strategy, as well as cards that it might want to splash. The big thing that you're doing with Prismari spells is casting big spells. There are a lot of seven and eight mana spells that do really powerful things. There is like a vertical cycle, I think they call it, where there's a common and uncommon, a rare and a mythic of blue-red spells that you can discard to make a treasure or you can cast for a strong effect. They're all strong. And this deck is basically built to stay alive and then cast those things. Basically, the deck revolves around removal, card draw, and, like, giant spells. So, a feature of some, but not all, of the versions of this deck is that they can lean really, 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 really hard into I am a deck full of instants and sorceries. You can get your creature count extremely low if you want. 
while still being able to play creatures thanks to the cards that make tokens. And I think that there's a significant amount to be gained by doing that. I don't think you want to actually play zero creatures. I think erring toward when in doubt, take the non-creature. Mostly what happens when you do this is you make Serpentine Curve, the blue three sorcery that makes a zero zero and puts counters on it equal to one plus the number of instants and sorceries in your graveyard. That card is very weak in basically every other deck. It doesn't feel like a very strong payoff to draft around. The fact that like no one else wants it and you can get it late means that you can just expect to have two to four of them pretty easily. Spending four mana for like a seven, seven plus or whatever is pretty strong. And also when you do this, when your creatures are mostly created by spells and you have like your creatures are Serpentine Curve and potentially splashing Leyline Indication which makes a creature with power and toughness equal to the number of lands you control for six mana. When those are your creatures, it means that any other creatures you have that have magecraft are really easy to trigger, and you trigger them very frequently and potentially to great effect. Quandrix Pledge Mage is the card that really stands out as kind of a linchpin, like the creature card that I really want to play in a deck that's based around trying to play the minim minimum number of creatures. Uh, the other card that I'm most likely to want when this is my strategy is Prismari Pledge Mage. This deck is not very aggressive or concerned with its opponent's life total. I don't really care how often I'm triggering its ability to attack. I'm just interested in a 3-3 for 2 to block, and a 3-3 for 2 to block does pretty good work in terms of stopping the opposing aggro decks and letting you save your removal and giving you time to play card draw. Just a really simple curve of Prismari Pride Mage into Pop Quiz, which is the three mana instant that draws a card and learns, is a really safe, easy start that, you know, starts getting you some card advantage without letting you fall too far behind. Basically, I think Prismari Pride Mage and Quandrix Pride Mage are a great core to a really heavy spells deck where those are the creatures that you're playing. There are a few other creatures that I'm not unhappy to put in the deck, most notably Illustrious Historian, which is one in red for a 2-1 and you can exile it from your graveyard for five mana to make a tapped 3-2 spirit token. Generic, fine, early blocker. Also, you can potentially discard it to Thrill of Possibility or something for a little bit of value. Frost Trickster, which is two and a blue, 2-2 two -two flyer, ETB, tap and lock down a creature. Reasonable incidental threat slash blocker for flyers that gives you some tempo, you know, like a mini Bergstrider. Just a, just a strong card, not very on plan with this deck, but strong enough that I wouldn't be, a fr be sad about playing it. Spectacle Mage is the one blue red 2-2 flyer that makes your spells that cost five or less cost one less to cast, which means that it's, you know, a smooth curve from Tome Shredder into a five mana spell of some sort on the following turn. But kind of more importantly, this makes your seven mana spells only cost six and stuff like that. Makes it a lot easier to cast the big stuff. The next creature that I would be willing to play in this archetype is Pillar Drop Warden, which is the 1-5 reach that you can spend two mana and sacrifice it at sorcery speed to return an instant or sorcery from your graveyard to your hand. And that's kind of it as far as like common creatures that I'm particularly happy playing in this deck. Generally be looking to minimize how many of those I'm playing. The thing is that leaves not very many different cards that are common that I want in my deck, specifically if I'm trying to restrict my deck to blue and red cards like the the blue and red spells that seem good in this deck are basically curate the one in a blue instant that looks at two cards and can put them in the graveyard or the bottom and 
draw a card. Good way to trigger Magecraft and dig for stuff that matters and fuel Serpentine Curve. Heated Debate, which is the two in a red, deal four damage to a creature or Planeswalker. It can't be countered. Pop Quiz, which I mentioned is the card draw spell that learns. Serpentine Curve, which I've talked about. Baryan Books, which is five in a blue. Instant, put a creature second from the top. It costs two less if that creature's attacking. That card's really, really good. Probably on par with Heated Debate in terms of just like strength of removal spell. Great way to answer opposing large tokens, which can often be a problem when your deck is based on red removal. Pigment Storm, which is the deal five damage to a creature that kind of tramples to a player for three and two red sorcery. And Elemental Masterpiece, which is the seven mana make two four fours that can you can discard it to make a treasure. Which is, you know, that's just seven different spells. I'm mostly hoping to fill my deck with Pledge Mages, both blue Pledge Mages, and a lot of copies of those spells, and more importantly, Rares and Uncommons. So I often start with like the Rares and Uncommons that are making you want to do this, and I'm kind of working backwards today, today, I guess. So let's go back step and let's talk about like, okay, I acknowledge that this deck exists and this is like what it looks like, but what tells me that I should be drafting this? Why do I get into this? Like I said, you can draft your deck around Serpentine Curve, and if you've drafted your deck around Serpentine Curve, you might be the only person at the table where, like, the uncommon Spell Satchel, which is the two-mana artifact that gets a counter whenever you play it. Like, Magecraft gets a counter, and then you can tap it and remove a counter for a mana, or tap three and tap it and remove three counters to draw a card. Card's really weak, unless all of your deck cards are spells, and then I think it's reasonable. Not strong, but fine. Especially if you have, like, seven drops that you're trying to cast. So I think, like, Serpentine Curve and Spell Satchel are payoffs that nobody else wants that are rewards for being in this archetype, but they're certainly not reasons to be in this archetype. You're not going to, like, take a Serpentine Curve early and be like, all right, now I'm going to draft my deck around making my creature a little bit bigger when I cast my four drop. That's not going to get you very far. It's not a hard creature to answer or anything. You want that to be an incidental payoff that's working towards some other thing you're doing. As far as uncommons, the big draws to this are Creative Outburst, which is the red, red, blue, blue, three instant that deals five damage to any target, looks at the top five cards of your library, puts one of them in your hand and the rest on the bottom. You can spend blue, red, blue, red hybrid, discard it, make a treasure. So the uncommon part of that vertical cycle. Explosive Welcome, which is eight mana, deal five to one thing, three to another thing, and make three three red mana. Expressive Iteration. Expressive Iteration is probably more of a payoff. It's the two. It's a very good two-mana card draw spell. It's look at the top three cards of your library, put one of them in your hand, one on the bottom of your library, and exile one of them, and you can play the exiled card. It's basically two-mana draw two cards, but you can't play it on turn two if you want that effect. But it's really, really strong. It's like kind of a high pick, but it doesn't particularly push, push you into this deck. It's just good. Similarly, Igneous Inspiration is the two and a red sorcery, deal three damage to any target, learn which is another great card in this deck, but it's great in actual anything, so it doesn't like strongly push you in this direction. Then there's Maelstrom Muse, which is part of the hybrid and not hybrid cycle. It's two blue, red, and a blue or red for a 2-4 flyer that when it attacks, your next spell costs less mana equal to uh, Maelstrom Muse's power. Really, obviously, great enabler for casting the seven drops. This is obviously a strong draw to be this deck specifically. You play that, next turn you attack, and, you know, if it lives and it gets to attack, you're good to go on casting your seven drops. And then the last uncommon that's really pulling me into this deck is Rutha, Mercurial Artist. This is one blue-red for a 1-4 
and you can spend two mana and return it to your hand to copy an instant sorcery. This is a card that has really, really impressed me. I played a couple of them in the Sweatseed Invitational yesterday, which was a streamer tournament that I did well in. I lost in the finals in a blue-red spells mirror match, which is why, sorry, I actually meant to discuss this uh, earlier. So yesterday, at the time of recording this, we played the Welcome to Strixhaven Sweatseed Invitational Tournament, which was a tournament with a bunch of streamers that where we played a double elimination tournament with a Strixhaven and the finals was played between myself and Kyle Rose of the Ham TV. And we were both playing Prismari Spells decks with Mizzix Mastery, which I'm gonna talk about in a little bit. We met in the finals. So I figured the fact that this deck uh, performed so well in you know the first tournament with this deck suggested that it was probably worth talking about. Anyway, Rutha was great. The ability to just like over time copy all of your spells. Turns out that's really strong. I mean, you're I'm, you're pretty in for a 1-4 blocker for three. It blocks better than that. I had several plays where I would just pass with Rutha while my opponent had like a 5-4 creature and I would just block with Rutha, cast Curate, pick up, copy it with Rutha. And now I've both stopped that creature from damaging me for that turn and drawn an extra card. So it kind of gets to like, chump block without dying while generating value, and then you can play it again. Those are the uncommons that I'm gonna look for that are gonna both put me in this deck and that I'm looking for while I'm drafting to make the deck a lot better. Now let's talk rares. Archmage Emeritus is two blue blue for a two two with Magecraft draw a card. Pretty obviously the more instants and sorceries you can have in your deck, the more value you're gonna get out of that. And it obviously also plays well with a bunch of, you know, removal and bounce spells and stuff. Simple, perfect fit. It's not, as big a draw as some of the other stuff because it is just a 2-2 and your opponent can kill it, but I would be happy first picking this and drafting around it. It's just not as big a bomb as some of the other draws because of its fragility. Cody, Vociferous Codex. This card has generally been received by the community as a plant for commander, and I think it's one that looks largely like it might not be playable and limited because it does stop you from casting permanent spells. I believe that it's gonna be good in this deck. It is a three mana, one four, that says you can't play permanent spells, and it has four mana tap, add a mana of any color, and then it casts more spells when you do it, when you use it for casting spells. Cascades into spells in some capacity, I think, basically. Anyway, it's really strong. You wanna, you know, take it early and then draft the way I'm talking about, where you try to keep your creature count as low as possible. You can play well under 10 easily. If I have like a Prismari Pledge Mage, I just play it before I play the Cody, and then next turn I play the Cody. Like you can empty your hand of your, you know, two and three mana creatures, because you don't want to run Cody out there while it's gonna eat a removal spell anyway. Play Cody when you're done casting spells, and then maybe at some point in the game you draw like one more creature that stops you from casting. Meanwhile, it's drawing a card and casting it every turn or whatever. Cody's awesome, I'm pretty sure. I haven't played with it myself, but I'm looking forward to it. Next up, Draconic Intervention. This is two and two red, I believe. Sorcery, exile an instant sorcery from your graveyard to deal its casting cost and damage to all creatures. And I think you exile the damaged creatures. It's basically just a red Wrath of God. You get some amount of control over what things it's killing. And if you haven't found a way to get a big spell in the graveyard yet, you might not kill everything with it. But obviously in a deck full of card draw spells and stuff. It's not hard to have a serpentine curve 
fractal or something that lives through this. So it can be kill all of your opponent's creatures, leave a couple of like giant fractals from your Serpentine Curves or Leyline invocations, and then just kill them. First pick, great reason to draft the deck. Next up, Ifrit Flame Painter. This is four mana for a 1-4 double strike, and when it damages your opponent, you can cast an instant or sorcery from your graveyard. This is not limited on its casting cost, like Dreadheart Arcanist. Cast whatever you want, which means that you can discard any of the seven mana big spell cycle on turn two to cast Ifrit Flame Painter on turn three, and then if your opponent can't kill it and you can connect, you get to cast your seven mana spell the next turn. And then you still have the Flame Painter around and they still have to deal with that. So it's like a very, 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 very much must-answer threat if you do that, or if you just play a heated debate and then play this thing. Ifrit Flame Painter, another super strong you know, first pick style draw to this deck. Next up, Galazath Prismari. This is the, the Prismari dragon that makes treasure and two blue red for a, I want to say three, four flyer that makes a treasure and then lets you tap artifacts for mana. You know, just a clear great rate value flyer that makes it easier to cast your big stuff. Super strong in either, in any Prismari deck, but a, a great start for this. Magma Opus is the mythic part of the can make a treasure spell. It's an eight mana spell that just does a bunch of great things. Tap two permanents and deal four damage divided however you want and draw two cards and make a four four, I think. Just exactly what this kind of deck's trying to do. Um, take a draft this archetype specifically and it'll be great. Multiple choice. Early results on 17 lands, uh, too early for me to really trust them, have multiple choice as the card with the highest win rate when drawn. However, there are a number of cards that have insufficient data to even appear as competition. So I, I don't think that that's even vaguely claiming that it's the best card in the set, but it is clearly very good. Blue X generates several effects. Um, <laughs> scry and draw and bounce something and make a token and something else probably happens. I don't know, it's good. Eh, maybe just those things, I don't know. There might be another effect. It, it's a strong card. Good in any blue deck though. Not, not so much draft this exactly, although it is perfect in this deck, but it's perfect everywhere. Tempted by the Auric, blue, 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 one. Gain control of a cheap creature, I want to say limited to three CMC, probably. But that can take all the big token creatures and stuff, so it's really strong. In the Mythic Archives, the biggest draws to this kind of deck specifically are Blue Sun Zenith and Mizzix Mastery. I believe Mizzix's Mastery is the, in the right deck, it's the best card in the set. There is not another card that has a higher ceiling than this card. What it does when you cast it is absolutely absurd. If you're drafting anything like the deck that I'm describing, you essentially always win the game on the spot when you cast Mizzix's Mastery. And it's really easy to enable. It, it, just don't pass this card when you, if you open it in the first pack. In the second or third pack, it's often going to be too late to become a Mizzix's Mastery deck. You do need to be basically precisely this archetype, but it is a great reason to be this archetype. It's very easy for this archetype to dig to find it, and you just, you win every game where you cast it. Also, if you have this, you are going to very highly prioritize solve the equation, which is the uncommon that searches your library for an instant or sorcery and puts it in your hand, because you can find Mizzix's mastery, which solves the game. And then Blue Sun Zenith is the other like big payoff for being like a big mana control type deck. There are other great cards on the Mystical Archives sheet for this deck, uh, like Urza's Rage and Lightning Bolt and Electrolyze and Counterspell. 
but those aren't really draws for this deck specifically. I guess the other one that could be is Increasing Vengeance, which is like a fork that double forks from your graveyard. But for the most part, you know, you're looking for the blue and red spells. They're good. Put them in your deck. Those are the uncommons and rares that are like the draw to this. There are a bunch of other uncommons and rares that are first picks that lead smoothly into this deck. But those are the ones that are like, okay, I'm going to take this and this is what I'm going to do. There are also cards that you could first pick, but you don't, I wouldn't necessarily say that you should. And if you do, you want to be exactly this deck. Specifically, I'm thinking of Culmination of Studies, which is X blue red, reveal the top X cards of your library and generate a bunch of effects, which I think is like weaker than a lot of these other cards, but it is playable to strong in this archetype and... If I have it, it's a reason to be this archetype in particular. I just am less excited. Like, I'm not sure that you should be first picking it over heated debate or whatever. The last thing I want to touch on is about what we're splashing here. I think that you can reasonably splash green or white. You could also technically splash, like, a black card or something. But I think that it's going to be much more rare that you want to do that. You want to, like, splash adjacent gold cards most of the time. More often, you're going to be looking at green, mostly because there are just more green cards that fit well into this strategy. Teamer version of Prismari spells uh, is going to add the following green commons and uncommons. Eureka Moment, which is two blue-green, draw two, you can play an extra land, instant. Field Trip, which is two and a green, learn, search your library for a forest, put it onto the battlefield tapped. Leyline Invocation, which is five and a green, make a fractal, which is a zero, zero, that has counters equal to the number of lands you control. Mage Duel, which is two and a green, give a creature you control plus two plus one, and then it fights a creature you don't control, and this costs two less if you've already played a spell this turn. And then the uncommons, Bookworm, which is seven and a green for a seven seven trampler that gains three life and draws a card when it enters the battlefield, and you can spend two and a green to return it from the graveyard to your hand. Cards amazing finisher super high pick really really strong cultivate which i'm going to assume people know decisive denial which is blue and a green for an instant that counters target non-creature spell unless it's caster pays three or fights quandrix apprentice which is blue green for a two two magecraft look at the top three cards of your library put a land from among them into your hand quandrix cultivator which is the blue green hybrid blue green one 3-4, enters the battlefield, search your library for an island or forest, put it onto the battlefield, tapped. Zemon, Quandrix Prodigy, which is one blue-green for a 1-2. You can spend one and tap it to put a land from your hand onto the battlefield, or you can spend four and tap it and draw a card, and I think you draw two cards if you have eight or more lands. So like those are the cards that I would add to this package for the teamer version and reasonably often want to include those cards. In particular, Eureka Moment and Field Trip and Quandrix Cultivator, I suppose, make it a lot easier to cast your big stuff. And then like Bookworm is a really, really, really good extra big thing to cast. And all of this is like totally compatible with the keep my creature count super low, keep my spell count really high general philosophy of this deck. It's not hard to just, you know, splash some red cards or whatever into your Quandrix deck while still highly prioritizing and taking advantage of all of the big expensive Prismari cards. Instead, you are splashing white. You're looking at Pilgrim of the Ages, maybe. This is the uh, 2-1 ETB, search your library for a planes, put it in your hand. And if it's in your graveyard, you can spend six to return it to your hand. And that is good if and only if you have multiple planes in your deck. 
Thrilling Discovery is red-white gain two life. Then you can discard two cards to draw three cards. So obviously like a pretty nice way to fill your graveyard for Serpentine Curve and also get extra Magecraft triggers or, you know, dig to Mizzix's Mastery while powering it up or whatever. Expel, which is two and a white exile tapped creature. You are a bunch of spells. Your opponent's going to be attacking you. So this is going to be a really, really good hard removal spell. And then Rise of Extus, which is black-white hybrid, black-white hybrid four. Exile target creature, learn, also exile an instant or sorcery from a graveyard. This requires a little bit heavier of a splash, but it's also a six drop. This is like the Jeskai deck that's probably playing Pilgrim of the Ages and maybe is white enough to include Thrilling Discovery. It's just a good value removal spell. So you, you know, curve up some one for ones and then you get like a two for one. And then at Uncommon, you're getting Returned Past Caller, which is white, red-white hybrid, red, and three. So six mana for a 4-2 flyer. When it enters the battlefield, you can return an instant or sorcery or spirit from your graveyard to your hand. So obviously great if your deck's full of spells. You can just pick, pick up whatever you want. And, you know, the, the body's totally solid by itself. And then Rip Apart, which is red-white sorcery. Uh, deal three damage to a creature or planeswalker or destroy an artifact or enchantment. Those are the cards that I'd be interested in splashing. Again, I would want to splash zero to one of those colors, not both for the most part. Last thing I want to touch on is the lessons that are important here. Obviously, mascot exhibitions just like unbelievable. That's the seven mana that makes a bunch of tokens lesson that, you know, if you have that, now all of your lessons get you a really high impact finisher. And then among commons, we're looking more at elemental summoning and fractal summoning, though elemental summoning, I think, is if you have Mizzix's Mastery, you want elemental summoning rather than fractal summoning so that when you cast Mizzix's Mastery, you get a token rather than not. But both of them are very good in terms of just like they let you have a deck that's just like a bunch of dirtily nonsense, like a bunch of, you know, card draw and removal. You you actually want like multiple copies of elemental summoning and fractal summoning so that your lessons eventually turn into like your giant threats that are finishers. And now you just like don't need to worry about putting threats in your deck, which is nice. It's actually, it's really nice to not need to worry about putting threats in your deck. And then obviously environmental sciences, if you're splashing, also if you're not, cards are just great to have access to. I like to have an intro to prophecy. That's the three mana scry to draw card sorcery. If nothing else seems appealing, or if you just want to like get more gas and especially if you have a lot of learn cards in your deck, sometimes you're just like, yeah, I just want to like keep going for a while and I'll find my other learn stuff at a better moment. Any lesson you can cast is going to be good to have access to. Those are some of the ones that I think are particularly important for this archetype. I wanted to touch briefly on Storm because I thought that there was, sorry, I said this was the last thing and I lied. I wanted to touch briefly on Storm because it's weird and it exists and I figured people would ask about it. So in particular, Grapeshot and Mind's Desire exist in the Mystic Ar Mythic Archives. I don't believe Mind's Desire is good. I don't know how you would take advantage of it. It seems like an incredible amount of work for payoff that doesn't seem w remotely worth it to me. I'm sure someone will do something sweet with it at some point, and they'll probably tell me that I was wrong and it's great. I will not be convinced. I shouldn't say I can't be convinced, but that specific experience would not convince me. Grapeshot, on the other hand, I think is like 
pretty good. Not great or anything, I just think it's a fine removal spell. It's not going to be particularly difficult to, you know, generate Storm 2 or 3 or whatever and kill a creature or two. I don't think that you should be thinking of Grapeshot as like, oh, now I have a finisher in a Storm deck. So much is just, okay, cool, I got a removal spell. Obviously, if anyone is going to try to use Mind's Desire, Grinning Ignis is probably the most important card to making that happen. More likely, you're just going to use that to do a good grape shot. More likely than that, you're just going to use it to cast a 7 mana, like, instant or sorcery that is powerful. All right, so that is what I wanted to cover. That's what's going on. So I'm going to turn it over to any questions about Circotype, anything I touched on, anything I didn't touch on. While we're waiting on that, I want to take a moment, as always, to plug my Patreon, patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes, and more importantly, to thank my new patrons who have signed up over the last week. Thank you to Alan, Michael, Overwrote, Byron, Michael, Sam, and Andre. Uh, really appreciate all the support over there. Really happy to see a bunch of new faces. Thank you, everyone. And for anyone who isn't a patron, check it out. You know, see if you are into the benefits that we're offering over there. And like I said, if you sign up now in the future while I'm doing this, you can have my notes up to look over that while I'm going over it, if that sounds useful to you. Questions from chat. First question, since I mentioned Grinning Ignis, does it belong in the deck I described? Yes, it's not a priority, but it is solid. The deck that I had yesterday, I had a Grinning Ignis. I did not play it. I did sideboard it in sometimes. It was good in some matches. It does make a lot of sense in this archetype. It lets you cast your like seven and eight mana spells early. Sometimes it matters to cast your seven and eight mana spells early and sometimes it doesn't, I guess. And it's not like, you know, an impactful body, obviously. It, it's I think it's good, but not great, basically. If your opponent doesn't have removal and you need to go fast, it's a good way to go faster. Next question. Did the Elementalist not receive an honorable mention? So I assume that's referring to... I don't know what card is being referred to specifically. My best guess is Elemental Expressionist, which is the quad Prismari hybrid mana 4-4 that Magecraft gives you 4-4s if your stuff dies. I think that card's like solid in this deck because it's a 4-mana 4-4 that's like reasonably easy, easy to cast. But I think that it's probably better in like the aggro deck than the spells deck. It's it's fine. It's not like a significant draw to this version of Prismari specifically, um, and it's a card that's like fine to first pick or not first pick. It's largely a four mana four four. Next question: Do you think there's less value in playing around things in this format because there are so many instances to account for in the format compared to the average format with mystical archives cards, etc.? No, I don't. I don't think this set's like so big that you can't possibly keep everything in mind. Given what mana your opponent has available, you don't, it's not so much about like, oh, they can cast exactly this spell or this spell or this spell. It's about what are all of the kinds of effects that my opponent can generate here? How much damage can they do to a creature? Can, is there a removal spell that functions? And you do want to know, all right, what could happen to me? And you do need to know all the cards that exist to know that, but your shortcut for processing that should be what's the most damage that can be done to a creature for this amount of mana kind of stuff. And then you shouldn't need to like think through every single card individually. Next question, how many creatures does a Prismari spells deck have? And then there's a question about, is it between seven and 11? I would say I played seven and I felt like it might be a stronger deck if I could get that number lower. I think that you can conceivably end up playing more like four 
it's not necessarily better too. There are some creatures that are really, really strong. I played seven not because I didn't have enough other spells to play, but because the creatures that I played were very strong. I had two Ruthas, two Prismari Pledge Mages, two Quandrix Pledge Mages, and Lorehold, the Mythic Dragon. And that felt like very, very, very few creatures and also pretty good. So that's like the kind of space I want to be in. Basically, not very many creatures and only the great ones. Next question, when do you find yourself discarding the spells for treasure? If I kept a two-lander with a card draw spell and didn't get there or whatever, like basically if I'm in serious desperation mode or if I have like multiples of them and one will let me cast another and that'll be great, or if I'm specifically trying to get to Mizzix's Mastery quickly, those would be the main times. I guess also if you're trying to do something busted, like cast Efreet Flame Painter or something. So this next question is, what blue and red spells are you fighting hardest over with Lorehold and Quandrix decks, particularly early? So basically this is, what are the cards that other people at the table are going to want such that you know that you should prioritize them? And if you prioritize them, there's the advantage that you could hypothetically be better positioned to pivot. So basically this is acknowledging the cards that you're the only person who wants, you can table and so you shouldn't prioritize. Whereas cards that other people want, you both need to take them earlier to get them and you get more flexibility in terms of your ability to pivot into a different deck if you take something that's useful here and elsewhere. So pretty good question, I would say. Curate is more or less uniquely good for this deck. It's mostly there to like power up your Serpentine Curve and like the Magecraft and stuff. So that's not a priority. Pop Quiz, I think is also like pretty filler in the other decks. Heated Debate's a really high priority for everybody. Baryan Books is a pretty high priority. Pigment Storm's a reasonably high priority. I would say Heated Debate, Baryan Books, and Pigment Storm are the most, if I am this color, I'm gonna want this thing. And then Elemental Masterpiece is just like, obviously for this deck specifically, Serpentine Curve, Pop Quiz, Curate are either specifically for this deck or kind of like whatever in other decks. And then among Splash cards, Eureka Moment and Field Trip are pretty high priority, just like good cards, even though Eureka Moment is narrow to Quandrix, it's very strong. It currently has like the best win rate of any common on 17 lands and the, you know, super early projections. Similarly, Mage Duel, although I think that one's actually a higher priority for other people than it is for you. Whereas like Leyline Invocation, I don't know. I'm, I'm fine floating that one. I'm not that sad if I don't get it. And I don't know that other people want it that much. Bookworms, you know, just like a bomb. Same with like Cultivate's a high priority. All the Quandrix Uncommons are just good in every Quandrix deck. And then Expel is actually like not a super high priority for a lot of white decks. So you can actually kind of get that one later even when you're splashing it. The white commons, I think you don't need to like prioritize, which is good because I don't think you're really looking to prioritize them because it's unlikely that you're gonna go in white. It's more like if this is there at the end of the pack, you can pick it up and then maybe you splash it if you're, you don't end up splashing green, but you are able to splash something. Next question is just verifying that in this archetype, when you are like, when you're an archetype based on casting big spells, the default is that you want to cast those big spells rather than discarding them for mana. There might be, you know, other builds that are more likely to use them as a treasure. I don't think so. I think that they're, they're strong and you should try to cast them. The treasure is like a fringe benefit rather than like a split card where half the time you're making a treasure or something. How worried am I about dying to attacks and two drops and which two drops are passable for this deck besides the 3-3? Three, three? So... In this format, as I have experienced it so far, it could easily change as people learn to draft more and better aggro decks. But in this for format, as I have experienced it so far, 
few decks have meaningfully pressured me in a way that makes me like really scared about aggro. I do think that it is possible to get run over in this archetype, and it is nice to you know prioritize cheap removal, especially if you can find stuff like Shock and Electrolyze and, you know, Lightning Bolt and any of those, like, good cheap Mystic Archives removals, plus, you know, Heated Debates and Buried in Books to stay alive. But you do also, you know, it's good to have access to some two-mana blockers. So as I mentioned, Prismari Pledge Mage and then also Illustrious Historian, which is the one in a red for a 2-1 that uh, you can exile from your graveyard to make a 3-2 spirit. If you're really worried about it, you could play the Flash Frog or whatever, but I don't recommend it. Next question, how often are you splashing for Teamer? Uh, as often, I mean, basically, I think it just hinges on do you have an environmental sciences? And so how frequently it is just depends on how highly you're willing to prioritize drafting environmental sciences. It's like much more about like, is this is the way that you're drafting this set to take environmental sciences highly and position yourself to splash or not? And I think it's like, fine to draft either way and fine to end up in this deck either way. Whether you're making a priority of environmental sciences will determine how frequently you're splashing. This question is about the common lands that are available. I think it's very nice to pick up on color campuses. I don't think that they're very necessary to making your mana work in this deck, and I think that you, because of lessons, you often have plenty of stuff to do with your mana. But it's obviously, you know, dual lands are good. The ability to scry is good. I would much rather have these in my deck than not. But I will often prioritize taking another lesson to have access to over taking a dual land. And then as for the, like, Rupture Spire type card, I think it's really bad to play generically. I think that it exists to allow someone to play four or more colors. And if you're only playing three, things are basically going disastrously if you have to put it in your deck. Uh, next question is, how highly would I take environmental sciences if I don't have any reason to splash yet? I take environment. I take the first copy of environmental sciences extremely highly. I'm willing to first pick it. How highly do I take learn cards in general? I take cards that are good highly, and I think most learn cards are good, but it varies a lot depending on what the learn card is. Next question is, any major weaknesses I foresee with this archetype? This is a control deck. Uh, like any control deck, it's going to depend on, like, the total strength of your deck, and the total strength of your deck is often going to be largely informed by the strength of your higher rarity cards. I think that when you have busted rares that you're drawing to, especially in large numbers, the deck is fantastic, but the version of this deck that's all commons and uncommons and trying to play a long game very seriously risks losing to stronger late game decks, which are not uncommon in this format. The biggest risk with this deck or weakness here is that you take a reasonable payoff and then don't see other great payoffs. Maybe not even because you're competing with someone else for the archetype, but they might just not be opened. That's like the biggest danger in my mind. I think the best way to hedge against that is to be aware of and open to pivoting into more aggressive builds of Prismari, uh, which I will discuss in more detail in a future episode. I think that that's like where this deck is going to fail most. Outside of that, there are some aggro decks that can run over this deck, especially if you happen to be a build of this deck that doesn't have enough cheap interaction. But that's just like typical, sometimes control decks lose to aggro decks type stuff. Next question is related. How heavily uncommon based would this deck need to be to be actively very solid? This deck relies pretty highly on higher rarity cards. I do think in particular, like a teamer version that has like, Prismari Pledge Mage, and then just like a bunch of like field trips and Eureka moments, and then some big stuff. That's a solid deck, 
but this is a deck that uses higher rarity cards really well. There's no way around the fact that the slower your deck is, the more true it is, that the more higher rarity cards you have, on average, the better your deck's going to be. Next question is about playing half on color Skylands just for the Scry ability. I'm not into it. Uh, I might do it. I might play like one if I don't have any on color Skylands, but for the most part, I want to build my deck in such a way that I expect to be able to basically spend all of my mana throughout the game, and I'm rarely going to want to Scry anyway. The idea of like having a tapped land because at some point in the game I might be able to spend a bunch of mana later to scry once is not appealing to me. Reasonably likely that I'll get punished for a tapped land in a deck that's really good at spending its mana, which I think almost every deck in this format is because of lessons in learning. All right, I am going to wrap this up. I want to mention as we get into this new format that it will take me a while to cover all of the archetypes. If you are looking for more of my content, then the easiest thing to do to learn about archetypes that I haven't covered yet is to check out my stream. I stream every day at twitch.tv slash samuelhblack and stream all the drafts that I play and obviously talk through all my decisions and stuff like that. If you haven't come by, come check it out and you can learn about archetypes that I haven't played yet much more quickly. If you are looking for something more personalized, extra help beyond that, I offer coaching message me on Twitter at Samuel H. Black or hit me up on Twitch or whatever for details about that. I will be happy to work with you, especially Unlimited. So consider it. All right, that will be it for this week. Next week, I believe the topic will be up to a vote by the patrons. So for anyone who is a patron, be sure to check that out and vote for the archetype you want to learn about next. Thank you, everyone, and goodbye.